I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Tuesday, May 8th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and the U.S. has just withdrawn from the Iran deal. Make America great again. I think, I think he is. I feel a little bit safer. Someone's got to hold those Iranians to account for their funding of the Houthi rebels. And what better mechanism to do that than unilaterally withdrawing from an internationally negotiated agreement, an agreement that wasn't about Yemen? It's funny how the Iran nuclear deal dealt with Iran's nuclear program, and it didn't deal with Iran's funding of the Houthi rebels or Hezbollah. Maybe that would have been the Iran-Houthi-Hezbollah deal, but we didn't have that. We had the Iran deal. And now we don't. Of course, also keep in mind that Iran does get to keep all the money that they got for implementing the deal for a year and a half, which that that right there is not a bad deal. You know the money, the crates of money, the barrels of money. Yeah, Trump was talking about barrels of money when Macron was in town. Listen, it wasn't taken out in barrels. They have footage of it. It was on a pallet. It was shipped like other bulk goods. Why would you ship rectangular pieces of paper even wrapped, why would you ship that in cylinders? That makes no sense. And if we can't trust the guy in the barrels, I'm wondering if we could trust him on diplomacy in general. So at least this does, though, answer the question associated with make America great again. Okay, what do you mean again? When does the again go back to? Is it a pre-post antebellum age? Was it the Gilded Age? Was it the time when a man was a man? And the lady folk would alternately coo and cower, as was the fashion of the time. No. Make America Great Again clearly refers to September 2015, because that was a month before the deal was signed. And you know, September 15 wasn't that bad. We, at that point, had 60 months of economic growth. We were on the verge of seeing 351,000 jobs created the next month, and that is the highest total of any month in the Obama or Trump administration. You know, the open enrollment period for Obamacare was about to happen, and it was going to be robust, 77,600 enrollees a day. Our president was respected and non-scandalous. Prince David Bowie and Carrie Fisher were still alive. The conservatives in Britain, having won power a few months earlier, called for a referendum, but no one was saying Brexit on this side of the Atlantic. And of course, September 2015, Trump had only been a candidate for two months, and he was kind of a joke back then. He was some far-off farce, not an actual threat that could have explosive real-world consequences, you know, like the Iran nuclear deal. If September 2015 was great in America, I guess it was because we couldn't see what was on the horizon and also because we couldn't appreciate the general improvement as reflected by conditions on the ground. Cut to elevator, slogan, hat, and a torn-up deal that was very much imperfect, but not as imperfect as chaos. On the show today, I spiel about how Don Blankenship was treated in West Virginia. It's a case study that proves that if the Republican Party had the 2016 election to do all over again, it would be just as bad. And in a post credit scene, a stinger, an Easter egg on the show today... I will explain what I've been doing these past two and a half years. So yes, I I think I've mentioned this. I have a new book coming out in a week. Maybe you heard. It's called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. More about that in this space. But we also have a podcast based on the book called, ready for the name? 
upon further review. It will debut the same day as the book, upon further review the book. And today we play the trailer for Upon Further Review, the podcast, and that will be in the credits, just like they do in those Marvel movies. In later days, we'll be plugging the Upon Further Review installation art, the Upon Further Review erotic puppet show. Well, we think it's erotic to the puppets. It's just like a nature documentary. But that will all be here. Stay tuned for that. But first, enough of the wacky Republicans of West Virginia. Let us talk about the self-sabotaging Democrats. A report on the liberal website The Intercept highlights what it portrays as a party controlled by fat cat insiders gleefully suppressing the will of the people. How close is reality to that cartoon version of the facts? And by cartoon version, I mean they literally made a cartoon out of it. The Intercept recently reported on goings-on in the Democratic Party, where in Colorado, on a seat that could be vulnerable to a Democratic takeover, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, intervened, telling one candidate, the progressive Levi Tilleman, to move aside for a candidate that they think would be better suited for that district. Tilleman leaked the conversation he had with Democratic Whip Steny Hoyer, The Intercept played edited portions of that conversation. They said it was only edited for some privacy concerns. And they also put together a video which depicts Steny Hoyer as chomping on a cigar and being depicted as literally a fat cat. Okay, but what about this? What about the Democratic uh congressional committee or democratic leadership in general doing what it can to assert pressure on potential candidates. Good for democracy, bad for democracy, good for the party, bad for the party, and how close are those two things? Joining me now is Alex Rorty. He covers the Democrats for the McClatchy newspapers. He's also a host, if not the host these days of the Beyond the Bubble podcast, which I quite enjoy. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. So when The Intercept broke this story, if the specifics weren't familiar to you, was the general trend familiar to you? Oh, 100%. And and I think we have seen the Democratic leaders, whether it's Steny Hoyer or leaders at the DCCC, you know, they have been very aggressive about picking and choosing what candidates they, they want in battleground districts. And they've been very upfront about it, actually. You know, the, the DCCC uh, will say that this election is too important. We can't leave it to chance. We have to try to muscle out the candidates we don't think are going to win the general election. And I think all of this is interesting because it feels like something from a previous political age, right? This is something that used to happen in the uh, cigar smoke-filled back rooms. Where as, party as, leaders the would, yeah. <laughs> as, as the cartoon depicts, yeah. As the cartoon depicts that, okay, you're, you're going to wait your turn. You need to wait a few years. So-and-so is our, is our guy. He's the one we're going to back. And we don't normally think of politics as working that way anymore. But that's what the, the Democratic Party is trying to do. And they're running into to, some real fierce resistance while they're doing it. So The Intercept published this because they are, I'm sure they would describe themselves as a progressive organization. But is it usually the case that when the Democratic National Committee, when they intervene, it's to favor a more moderate or less progressive candidate? 
I, I think that's generally true. I think among a lot of Democratic leaders and a lot of Democratic strategists and pollsters, there is still some skepticism that you know candidates who who have a firmly liberal position on something like let's say single payer health care, which has become a, a popular item on the left, or or raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. You know there is still some skepticism that the sort of average middle of the road voter who, as a the, as the thinking goes, is who you need to win over to to win these battleground races. That they're still skeptical about that. Let me just interrupt because I think you said something very important. Sure. I don't know that it's the case that the national Democrats are themselves more moderate. They're just making a political calculation that. If this seat is a pickup opportunity, it's because a Republican serves in it now. And if a Republican serves in it now, that it, that indicates that the district is at most moderate. So why not, I'm sure their thinking goes, pair a moderate with the district that is at most moderate? Or do you think that the DCCC themselves are more politically moderate than they are liberal? Look, the DCCC just wants to win. At the end of the day, that's what they're going to be judged on. That's what Ben Ray Lujan, the congressman in New Mexico, who's the chairman of the DCCC, that's what he's going to be judged on. And in their view, if you want to win over these voters, you can't have a Bernie Sanders type liberal. You need to have someone who's a little bit more centrist. As much as they want ideology, what they really want with candidates, they want candidates who can raise money. They want candidates who can raise lots and lots and lots of money because the most important thing for any candidate is, you know, when August and September roll around and whatever district you're running, you can run those TV ads. That's what that's the key to success and in, in their mind. And generally speaking, I mean, this won't be a big shock that if you're more of a centrist style lawmaker, particularly those who who work in, say, like a law firm or mm-hmm. worked in business who are just naturally going to be a little bit more centrist, I think, they're going to have access to more money. That's not just personal wealth. They're going to have friends, the kind of friends who can chip in $5,000 to their campaign. Most normal people don't have friends like that. I don't have friends like that. But that's what the DCCC is looking for, and that's what normally generally leads you to these more moderate candidates. Now, whether or not they're moderate or not, I tend to think that a lot of party operators in Washington – are liberal, and I think they're more liberal than the average person in America for sure, but they're also pragmatist. They want to win, and this is how they think they can win. So it might be that their priorities, a candidate who could raise money, dictates that that candidate has ties to corporations and ties to the establishment. And in fact, in Colorado 6th, which is the district we're talking about, Jason Crow, who is the candidate they're backing, is a corporate lawyer at a big law firm in Colorado. So they, I don't know what Steny Hoyer thinks in his heart of hearts. He might say, I'd love to have a progressive candidate, Bernie Sanders, run. But since the number one priority is raising money. Give me a Bernie Sanders and a corporate law firm. Oh, those two things are at odds with each other. We, we end up with uh, corporate lawyer Jason Crow. That's that's right. You know, and, and Crow checks a few boxes for them too. A, he he can raise a lot of money and has raised a lot of money, so they love that. He's also a veteran. And you will see, I mean, I'm on the, the battlefield of the 101 districts that Democrats have targeted. This is just a rough estimate. I feel like half the candidates the DCCC has recruited this year are, are veterans. Yes, And it seems like every up and coming, you know, the next hope Democratic candidate is a veteran. Disproportionate. Yeah, most Americans aren't veterans, but most Democrats aren't veterans by a wide majority. It seems like veterans who are anointed, be it Jason Kander in Missouri or Seth Moulton from Massachusetts or Tammy Duckworth, senator from Illinois. I mean, those are all veterans of our recent wars and they're being anointed as next great hopes for Democrats disproportionately from the party as a whole, I'd say. 
Oh, absolutely. And and the thinking there, again, you know, we're, we're taking a look at that moderate voter, right? And how do you win them over? Well, there isn't a lot of trust in institutions in America. This is something we've been talking about for years. The one institution that does seem to retain some trust and respect is the military. So it becomes a natural place for political parties to go to, to recruit candidates who can say that, you know, how dare you think, of, you know, if, if the charge is going to be where you're anti-American or you're not patriotic or you're not in step with America. American society. Well, being a veteran is certainly a pretty good rebuttal to that. It does seem to me that it's more likely to lead you, if these are the electable people who the party gets behind, it's more likely to lead, leave you with a party that is less likely to, say, take on the military-industrial complex. Or they might have the right positions on, say, single-payer health care. But if you think about their priorities, people with that background, a military background, that might not be their number one or two issues. It's sort of crafting a party based on maybe the most reasonable assessment of who can get elected, but it's crafting a party that isn't necessarily at the vanguard of where the party itself wants to be. And that's when I think a lot of the progressive critique of how Democrats do this really comes into play because they're saying that, look, you're even thinking short term that, OK, these candidates, they're going to come in. Maybe they'll win in 2018. You know what? It's going to be a good year. We're going to win a lot of races. And I'm sure some of these centrist candidates are going to win in November. But the problem is what happens once they're in office? What happens once they're in office and the party really wants something like single payer health care? And we have a bunch of candidates who maybe they said on their camp- campaign platform that they wanted it, but they don't really care that much. They're not going to push for it. The moment that political consequence comes into play, which it surely will when you start talking about something like single payer health care, they're going to back off. And the concern for progressives is – when you do that, that just deflates the, the party. That takes the air right out of the balloon for a party that's so energized right now leading up to the midterm elections that all of that could go away the moment they see a Democratic House. And there's a real chance that Democrats could take the House of Representatives this year. That next year when they're legislating, the base is going to be disappointed. And then you've got problems for 2020. And so a lot of progressives will say they're trying to set up a party that's not just going to win in 2018, but can deliver legislatively that creates more of a lasting majority. And, and yeah. that's, that's the thinking. It's a defensive posture. It's saying, well, what will be some characteristics that will assuage the middle of the road voter? And it creates a party that's, you know, less bold and daring that than might be created if you really did let the public have its will. And that's true. And, and you know, something to keep in mind, because there's been so much debate among progressives and a lot of more like establishment oriented Democrats over tension over the DCCC weighing in on these primaries. You know, at some at some level, I actually think, you know, there are 101 races, right, that yes. the Democrats have targeted as potential pickup opportunities. That's an enormous number. And a lot of these districts, you have sometimes as many as a half dozen legitimate candidates running. You're talking about several hundred candidates that a group like the, the DCCC, mostly located in Washington, have to try to learn and understand. And, and I think at some level, that's just a very difficult challenge. And I know some allies of the DCCC who stay in close contact with them will say, I mean, just logistically right now, it's very difficult to keep track of everything. And when that happens, when you, you're strained like that, the tendency, I would think, would be to fall back on what you know, what you know yeah. works. You know, that this isn't the cycle to try and really change up a strategy. Just be clear. I mean, and this isn't just a Democrat thing. This has long been a Republican thing. Everyone goes for the middle of the road candidate when you're a party operator in Washington. That's always been the playbook. That's always the way it's worked. 
there is a question of whether or not our politics is changing now, that there simply isn't a political middle that really exists anymore and it's more important to motivate your base. And that's a real that's a real theory. But I don't know that it's something that the DCCC could really embrace on a whim this cycle because they're just so overwhelmed with so much. And there's so much pressure to be clear. There's so yeah. much pressure. They have to win the House in November. There are There is no gray area here. If the Democrats do not retake the House in November, I mean, the party is going to rip itself apart in recriminations and questions about the strategy and what are we doing wrong. So there's a ton of pressure and there's a high degree of difficulty. And I think that's why you see a group like the DCCC, again, turning to this old playbook. So, so you mentioned it's the old playbook, but you also said they turn to what works. And I want to ask mm-hmm. you about that because in the Intercept article, there was a sentence. It was actually its own paragraph. The party, notably, has a poor track record in selecting candidates that could win the general election. Now, this is the Intercept, and they depicted Steny Hoyer as chomping on a cigar and transforming into a fat cat. So let us take that with a grain of salt. But I want to interrogate that. Does the party have a poor track record? in selecting candidates that can win a general election? In the, in the most recent elections, yes. It's not like the Democrats have won an awful lot of House races. That's not a big secret. My caveat with that is so much of what happens in November is determined by these forces that have, you know, a group like the DCCC has no control over, you know. And, and when you run in midterm election years, when your party controls the White House, it's really difficult to win races. You know, this, this race in Colorado 6 is one that the DCCC has targeted for several election cycles. They've spent tens of millions of dollars trying to defeat the Republican incumbent, Mike Kaufman, you know, and they've, they've fallen short every time. And look, is that a little on them? Of course it is. You know, of, of course they're responsible for that. At the same time, Mike Kaufman is, by all accounts, a, a, a strong Republican lawmaker. You know, he is close with the Latino community. He's a veteran himself. Um, he's able to raise a ton of money. And he's, you know, if you're running in 2010 or you're running in 2014, it was a pretty good year to be a Republican, to dismiss the the Democrats as completely ineffective in these races. Well, you're ignoring the larger political climate in those years. All right. Let's talk for one second about California, because so far we've been talking about states with primaries. And though we haven't said it explicitly, all these states have a Democratic primary and a Republican primary. But California does not have that. And from what I've been hearing, that could hurt the Democrats. It is their number one fear right now, without question. They have a number of opportunities in California, close to a half dozen or more opportunities, particularly in a place like Orange County, which has been, of course, classically a Republican stronghold that went for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And the problem is they're running in these these races where, they're again, there are six or seven credible Democratic candidates, and they're running against maybe two credible Republican candidates. Well, when you have California's system, which, thanks to Governor Schwarzenegger, the top two vote-getters, regardless of party, move on to advance – well, look, if you're splitting up the Democratic vote seven ways and the Republican vote two ways, you do the math. Even if the Republicans are only getting, say, 40 percent of the total vote, if they get each get 20 percent each, that's enough to, to effectively lock the Democrats out of uh, the general election. This has happened before and frankly could happen in two or maybe three races in November. So it's a it's a big concern. So what does the DCCC do about that? How can they exert pressure? Well, this is so this gets to be the the tricky position. We were talking about how much guff they've gotten for, you know, trying to push someone like Levi Tilleman out of the race. Well, in California, 
they need to be able to do that. And they've had some success, but very limited success in trying to get candidates to either drop out of the race or run in another district that maybe doesn't have as many Democratic candidates. But their ability to kind of boss these candidates around is is compromised. You know, it's, it's certainly diminished from where it would have been 10 or 20 years ago. And that's in part because there is this natural pushback to the, a group like the DCCC weighing in, even if, you, you know, even from an objective point of view that it makes a lot of sense that a group like the DCCC needs to get into these California races and make sure that they don't, their party doesn't get locked out of the general election. You know, there's still, there's still this pushback. And it's interesting, you know, I was in California in one of these competitive races just this past week, and I heard from Democrats there, there was anger at the DCCC for not doing more to mm-hmm. meddle in their primary. And, and it, you know, it's at that point where you can start to realize and maybe even have a little sympathy for the DCCC's position here. Well, maybe what the DCCC should say is in a couple of those California races, we'll back a progressive just to show that we're not only moderate or centrist candidates. That, to me, would be something where the DCCC could put their money where their mouth is. I think they could have used you as a strategic advisor yeah, right. early That's on in this process. I think that would have been would have been helpful for them. I'm the guy who said Howard Dean should have yelled more. So I don't know that I'm the guy <laughs> to go to on this. <laughs> Alex Rorty covers the Democrats for the McClatchy newspapers. And how many McClatchy newspapers are there? 30. Wow. The 30 newspapers of McClatchy. Thank you, Alex. Hey, thank you. And now the spiel. Today, primaries in the Senate races in Indiana, North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. I have talked about the race in West Virginia before, and that's the one I want to return to. Oh, to return to West Virginia. To some extent, I worry that I'm giving a bit of disproportionate attention to the West Virginia race, specifically because of the candidate Don Blankenship, who has made more money on coal mines than anyone in the U.S., and who spent a year in jail after one of his mines exploded and killed 29 West Virginians. So yes, last time around, I reveled in, bemoaned, but let's be fair, also reveled in the freak show that was the ascent of Don Blankenship. I also tried then, as I will now, to provide context into the phenomenon that is Don Blankenship, who Donald Trump has actually come out against in tweet form. Let's not have another Alabama, he says, of the choice they have to make in West Virginia today in the Republican primary. But today I want to talk less about the odious ideas and symbolism of Don Blankenship as much as I want to analyze the strategy of his opponents and the party actors and the media. What has anyone done to stop the guy? The media, I should say, for the most part, nationally, are doing just what I'm doing right here. Reporting, but also shaking our heads, mouth agape, and wondering how come. This show, The Gist, does have a national following. I've looked at the figures, and we have West Virginia listeners. Yes, we do. 2,000 downloaded last month. That is fourth from the bottom of states. Mississippi and the Dakotas, if you were wondering. But Alaska, which is fifth from the bottom, had twice as many just listens last month as West Virginia did. So I know that my words will be heard by some West Virginians, and I am giving voice to Don Blankenship. And the media was accused of that with Donald Trump. So I will say, prea culpa, if that is the charge. But mostly what I want to do is an exercise in reporting and a bit of media criticism. So let's start with the Fox debate that was held a week ago. Yeah, Fox, National, Fox News Channel, went down to West Virginia, staged a debate in the Mountain State. It did not go great. For one thing, they played Rocky Top 
during the commercial breaks, and everyone in the theater heard that. Rocky Top is the state song of Tennessee, and candidate Evan Jenkins, U.S. representative, pointed that out. I want to take a brief second. Playing Rocky Top for Tennessee and West Virginia. It's country roads here, folks, not Rocky Top. <laughs> yeah. Duly noted, duly noted. Whoops. As for the Fox News Channel moderators, their status as outsiders, it was pretty glaring throughout. So there you had Jenkins tearing into his main rival, the man he perceives as his main rival, not Blankenship, but the Attorney General, Patrick Morrissey. And the charge against Morrissey is that that guy's from out of state. And not, it's not just from out of state, but he actually ran for office in New Jersey. We need somebody representing our values. You can't change your values just because you change your zip code. But what are Jersey values as opposed to West Virginia values? Again, she's from New Jersey. I'll let you define. We we got two folks from Jersey here. I'll let you all talk about Jersey values. Oh, you said there was something wrong with them, so I'm just curious. What's wrong with them? Jenkins never really engaged on what was wrong with Jersey values. I think most of the audience just kind of knew, you know. But if you get the impression that Jenkins was tearing into Morrissey quite a bit, you would be right. He and his family lobbying firm have made millions and millions. They have flooded our state with these pain pills that have devastated people in West Virginia. And Morrissey was tearing into Evan Jenkins. Evan, you should be ashamed of yourself for that outrageous vote killing the unborn. And there, standing right next to them, was Don Blankenship, who killed the born. And no one said a word. No one thought it wise or proper or moral to take a moment and say, I'm not going to be lectured by a multimillionaire who has the blood of 29 of our people on his hands. And because they didn't do it, it was left to the moderators to ask questions. And on this point, they did not shirk their responsibilities. But they didn't really call into question any of Blinkenship's self-serving, far-fetched answers. You have to have an explosive atmosphere, no matter whether you have sharp bits or dull bits or plug water sprays or no water sprays. You have to have an explosive atmosphere. Blankenship says that federal regulators forced air into the mine when, in fact, an investigation shows that his non-compliance allowed coal dust in the mine and that got in the way of ventilation. Now, even if the moderators had pushed back on this, it really wouldn't have hurt Blankenship. His brand doesn't suffer when he's tangling with reporters, even knowledgeable reporters. That kind of burnishes his outsider credentials. What could have brought him down a peg was either of his rivals there on the stage pointing a finger in his face and calling him to account for his lies, his outrageous statements, his campaign to this point, his life spent getting rich overseeing a deadly empire. We, nationally, I think have formed a consensus, even if you listen to national conservatives, national Republicans, they all agree, you know, what we should have done during the Republican primaries, the national primaries, that some of those 16 other candidates should have taken a stand against that dishonest, immoral interloper. We shouldn't have taken him as a joke. We shouldn't have let him get away with saying whatever he wanted to say. But it was a collective action problem. The other candidates in the 2016 Republican race all thought Trump was hurting some other guy more than they were hurting him. And, you know, they figured they could just draft alongside the bomb thrower and not get singed. And now in West Virginia, we have an almost exact replay of this circumstance. Fewer candidates, but enough. And again, the elected officials refused to engage the dangerous outsider. They allowed Blankenship to take his shots at the system, the truth, and even at them. I'm up here with two guys that's never created a job. 
and jobs in West Virginia are the most important thing. I'm up here with two guys, that uh, one of which oversees the worst uh, district in the nation for drug abuse deaths, and the other one lobbies for and works with and has friends that work for the drug companies that cause that. He was also up there with two guys who stood by and said nothing. They didn't even rebut those barbs. They each used their closing statement only to mention the other guy. If these two other candidates had been in soundproof chambers and hadn't heard Blankenship's attack, which came first, their closing statements would not have changed one whit. Amazing. I do not know how the West Virginia primary will shake out. The polls are out of date and perhaps are not that reliable to begin with. Also, I am not a reporter in state. But I have watched two full West Virginia debates, God help me. And I got to conclude, Blankenship really is quite Trumpian. He's more Trump than Trump in some ways. His nickname for Mitch McConnell, Cocaine Mitch, is a lot better than Lion Ted or Little Marco. But then again, he is not Trumpian in a lot of ways. For one thing, Trump thumbs his nose at the law, but he never served time. Seems like a big difference to me. Spin it however you want, West Virginia Don. But New York Don never spent time in the pokey. I faced 30 years in prison for a fake charge, and I beat all three of the felonies. Also, Blakenship, as you can hear, he's not the uh, bombastic speaker that Trump is. Not by any degree. But I think the biggest difference is that Trump was the front runner all along. We didn't believe it. His rivals didn't believe it. But there's a difference between ignoring polls and wondering if maybe the polls are misleading. In either case, the other Republicans in the race are clearly playing a dangerous game. Blankenship is so unpolished and unqualified that it seems far-fetched that he could win. And in a normal world, before Donald Trump thought us to rethink all our assumptions, maybe he couldn't. In a normal world, that's not the world of the Republican Party primary in the very state that Donald Trump won by his highest margin in a normal world. I guess we will see tonight how much the normal world resembles West Virginia. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA helped produce the gist, helped, past tense. Another day of vacation. He has taken the red eye back. Talk about a mode of transit that doesn't overpromise yet still manages to underdeliver. Mary Wilson is the gist's senior producer. She insists on cash on the barrel head, not in the barrel. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He once had a girl on Rocky Top, half bear, other half cat, wild as a mink, but sweet as soda pop. Oh my God. It turns out that West Virginians are light years ahead of Tennesseans when it comes to interspecies dating. The gist. I've been to West Virginia, but I think I screwed up my visit because I got a misty taste of teardrop moonshine in my eye. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for continuing to listen for these next two minutes as I ask you to consider and subscribe to the feed of my newest podcast upon further review, The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History. Here's a taste. What we want from sports are championships and glory. That's not what we usually get. And so what we're left with is what if. Behind the bag, it gets what if we had run instead of passed? Lost the football. Unbelievable. What if the ball had bounced the other way? What if the ref hadn't blown his whistle? What if? 
What if Maradona had admitted to what that handball? What if the handball? U.S. hadn't boycotted the Moscow Olympics? What if the U.S. Olympics? had boycotted Hitler's what Olympics? What if Michael Jordan could hit a curve? What if water polo also was played with horses? What if the Jets had lost Super Bowl three? What if Coach Dale had used Jimmy as a decoy? All good questions, except the water polo one. That is just insane. To ask what if is at the root of rooting. And yet there's never been a podcast that embraced this question until now. Like, what if Richard Nixon had been good at football? It could certainly have had an effect on him psychologically. We get an intriguing answer from the team behind the Slow Burn podcast. Then fast forward to 1999. Chastain will take it. What if Brandy Chastain's penalty kick had hit the crossbar in the Women's World Cup final? We'll check in on modern Brooklyn, where the Dodgers never left. Robert Siegel is our guide. I heard from many people who think the city will be just fine without baseball. And we'll consider the misplaced passions of a boy from New Jersey. Young Jesse Eisenberg once wrote a fan letter to his favorite player with disastrous results. Yes, I am the reason the Phoenix Suns lost the NBA Finals that year. Finally, we'll tune into a fiery and highly fictitious Boston sports talk radio show. The quarterback who I think could have made a difference, Tom Brady. What? Tom Brady? (laughs) I know. I knew it. I knew it, Tom. In this alternative universe, Brady and Belichick never took over, and the Patriots were awful for decades. You see, a good what if lets us dream or at least ponder, and you'll never see your favorite team or player the same way again. The podcast is Upon Further Review, hosted by me, Mike Pesca. Look for our first episode on May 15th. What if you download it on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts?